So for the last for the last few Easter Sundays, we've been working through the chapter of First Corinthians 15. Um, and so, yeah, I think we started in 2018. Um, looked at at First Corinthians chapter 15, verses one through 11, the resurrection of Jesus. Right, Jesus uh, was crucified. He really died. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. People saw him. There were witnesses <coughs> that can that can kind of affirm that this happened. Paul says those witnesses are still alive today. Here's who they are. You can go talk to them. You can ask them about the resurrection of Jesus and be assured that he was raised from the dead. Verses 1 through 11, verses 12 through 34. (coughs) uh, We looked at how the resurrection of Jesus affects our lives as Christians today. How how the resurrection gives us assurance uh, that that Jesus will be resurrected. that because Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we can have confidence that we will be resurrected from the dead as well. If, if Jesus is still dead in the ground, then we have no reason to believe that we will not also rem- stay dead and remain uh, in, in the ground, right? So, so if this life is all there is, then what's the point of believing in God, trusting in God, obeying God? But if Jesus is alive, then we can trust that we will be resurrected. So instead of living however we we want to live, we should live this life in light of uh, eternity and, and use this life to make investments that will yield a return in eternity. So it's verses 12 through 34. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 49. We kind of looked at the, the resurrection, the nature of eternal life, the nature of the, the resurrection bodies that we will uh, possess in, in eternity. Paul's essentially saying, you know, I, I get that I've argued that Jesus has been raised up from the dead, and I get that I've argued that because Jesus was raised up from the dead, you too will be raised up from the dead, and you will have eternal life as well. But then he kind of answers the objection that's like, well, that's news to me, right? What if, what if my life is, it, what if the prospect of having uh, trillions and trillions and eternal life that's just like this one is not good news to me. There's entire religions based on the fact that, that this life is hard and we don't want to live it forever. And so we want to we want to stop living rather than continue living. That's that's almost every Eastern religion. And so Paul addresses that in verses 35 to 49 and says, uh, the, the eternal life that we will live with God is not going to be just like this one. We're not going to live in bodies just like, like these. It's not going to be marked by pain and suffering and difficulty. Uh, you know, it's not just that Eternal life will be diff- will be different quantitatively, in that we will instead of living for eighty or ninety years, we will live for trillion. We'll live for eternity. That's true, but it's also going to be different qualitatively, wherein uh, you know this this life, this fallen world, this body that we're experiencing, marked by sin, suffering, brokenness. Eternal life won't be like that. It will it'll be uh, pain, no sadness, no sin. Right, living in right, living in the presence of Jesus enjoying the unmediated glory of, of God. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15 up until verse 50. Today we finish the chapter, kind of finish uh, Paul's, did I? Okay, good. Make sure, I think I forgot my microphone at one point. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, finish up the, the chapter and look at um, how Jesus, through his resurrection, gives us victory over Satan and sin and death. So we're going we're gonna to read verses 50 to 58, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to get rolling. It says, I tell you this, brothers, 
flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rose from the dead in power and in victory. We thank you for everything that that means for us as your people. We thank you for Easter Sunday when we remember the reality that you rose from the dead, when we celebrate it as a family. And Jesus, we ask you to bless these next few minutes we study your word, we ask you to speak to us and to help us to listen to you. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going we're gonna to look at three, three points this morning. Uh, the first, first verse and the last verse kind of have their own points, and then verses 51 through 57 kind of share one, one point, so we'll just kind of work through uh, them, you know, consecutively. Uh, Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. First point here that Paul is making is that you, natural man, you in your default state, prior to God's intervention in your life, prior to God's sovereign grace in your life, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Right? There's there's a problem that needs to be solved. There's an issue to be addressed. There's a, a barrier that needs to be overcome. You are, are flesh and blood. You are perishable. You are, uh, according to verse 43, uh, you are sown in weakness and in dishonor. Right? right? You, in, in and of yourself, as you exist right now, there is something inherently about you, something intrinsically about you, something kind of, uh, you know, in accordance with your very nature, something ontologically about you, something, uh, you know, in, in accordance with the nature of who you are that is incapable, that is unfit of being able to inherit the kingdom of God. Something that is, that is un, unable, incapable of participating in the, the kingdom of, of God. Back in chapter 6, Paul says, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And he kind of spells it out with a number of different, you know, kinds of of sins and descriptions of unrighteous people, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, uh, people who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, 
swindlers, right? These kinds of people will not and they, they cannot inherit the kingdom of, of God, right? So, so the, the picture that's painted by Scripture is that God has created his people to know him, to experience his love and his, his plan for their lives, to enjoy his presence and his glory, but they cannot. There's, there's a, a discontinuity. There's, there's a tension. There's, there's an incompatibility between us and between God. There's something about us that we, that we, you know, we are uh, perishable and mortal and thus incapable of taking possession of the kingdom. This is the, the central theme of the whole Bible is, is how can God, who's glorious and perfect and cannot look on sin, how can God welcome sinners into his presence? How can sinful people who want to be with God, need to be with God, right? We're created to be with God. How can we enter into the presence of God who is holy and righteous and cannot look on on sin, right? We've, we've evoked the wrath of God. We've evoked the, the judgment and condemnation of God. We've made it to where we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And, and if we want to, right, in, in order to overcome this, this issue, this problem, if we want to experience God's glory, God's love, God's, God's presence, when we are inherently, ontologically incapable of, of doing so, there needs to be a fundamental change that must take place. Kind of this, this, change, this, this inside and out, kind of a, a changing, a remaking, a regenerating of the human uh, person, right? We need our sins to be forgiven. We need a new heart. We need a heart that, that loves God and wants to obey God. So the first point when we look at these, these nine verses here is that, that we cannot inherit the kingdom of God as we are. In order to experience the life that we were created to live, we need a fundamental, comprehensive, kind of a holistic uh, recreating or re- regenerating, as, as it were. And that's kind of what we see in verse 1 to 57, is we see uh, this, this kind of uh, process that, that God is going to, to act on sinners to, to make it to where they can inherit the kingdom of God and experience God's love and God's uh, presence. We need God to change us and save us, right? And, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's human beings don't change themselves. They don't revitalize themselves. They don't turn over a new leaf. It actually has to be, what we'll see is that, uh, that they are acted upon by, by an, an external agent other than, other than themselves. God comes to them. God changes them. Verse 51, Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. This is kind of the, the mystery of how God is going to, uh, you know, take people that are uh, inherently unfit to be with him and kind of welcome them into his presence. And a mystery is something that's been hidden, that's been kind of lying in wait, waiting to be revealed. But I'm going to tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So now Paul is specifically looking at um, the, the day of the Lord. Well, he's specifically looking at the day when Jesus returns to, to you know, um, you know, bring final judgment against his enemies and final salvation for his, his people. He says, we shall not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death, uh, as it often is uh, used in that way in, in the Bible. So Paul is saying, you know, it's true that everyone dies, right? Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men. So 
everyone dies, all men uh, die. Hebrews 9, it's appointed for all men to die and to face judgment. Everyone dies. You can't cheat death. You can't escape death. But Paul is saying uh, in the grand scheme of things, when we kind of every single person for all of human history, including the last generation, when God comes back, when Jesus returns, uh, everyone's not going to die because the people that are alive when Jesus returns are not going to to die. But uh, they shall be be changed, right? In, in a mo- verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, right? right at some point in human history, Jesus is going to come back. Uh, we're not going to expect it. It's going to happen suddenly, but Jesus is going to return for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So, so Jesus is going to defeat his enemies. He's going to gather his people to his kingdom to be with him forever. Everyone who's de- right, every single person who has died trusting Christ, believing the gospel, right? Every single person uh, from, from Adam all throughout the entirety of human history who has died trusting in the mercy of God, right? The moment they died, their soul went to be with God. Second uh, Corinthians 5 says that when we are away from the body, we are at home with the Lord. So when a believer dies, uh, their body remains here on earth. We bury it, cremate it, whatever we do. But their soul, their immaterial spirit goes to be with the Lord. It's conscious, it's aware, and it's, and it's in the presence of, of God. But when Jesus returns, uh, our bodies are going to be raised up from the grave and our immaterial soul that to that point has been with God in the presence of God is going to be reunited with our physical body and our physical body and our soul newly, uh, you know, rejoined back together is going to be recreated, remade uh, so that we can live forever in the kingdom of God. It's going to happen to everyone who has died or who does die prior to the second coming of Christ. They're, They're resurrected and they're changed. So those people will sleep, quote unquote, die, and then they will be changed so that they can live with God forever. But uh, for those who uh, are trusting Christ and who are still alive when Christ returns, they won't die, they won't uh, sleep, but they will be changed. Meaning that everything else that we just said about being regenerated, recreated, given a resurrection body so that they can live forever in the presence of God in his kingdom, that will all happen. And it will happen in a moment. It will happen in the twinkling of an eye. They'll be changed, remade so that they can live forever in the kingdom of God. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. That's Paul, I mean, literally just kind of reading and summarizing what he uh, spoke about in verses 35 to 49, which we dealt with last uh, Easter 2020. So uh, feel free to revisit that uh, online for deeper study or just read verses 35 to 49, uh, you know, at some point right now or, or this this week. Long and short of it is that that after we die, after Jesus returns, we're going to be raised from the dead, remade into something that's radically different, radically better. Our eternal life in, in a renewed, recreated body will be vastly different than the body and the life that we are living here. Currently, we're patterned after Adam, the first person that God created, but in heaven, we'll be patterned after Jesus himself, the, the, cro- the closest approximation to uh, what we will you know, be like and look like and feel like in eternity is not Adam in the garden, but it's Jesus as he, uh, you know, emerges from the empty tomb. 
verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass what is what is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? So, so in the resurrection, the people of God, right? Um, you know, this resurrection that is accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus, the, the Son of God, right? In the resurrection of the people of God, they experience total, final, complete victory over death, right? The, the, the victory or the, the um, relative sovereignty that death has kind of experienced and has kind of exerted over humanity and really over every living thing uh, is, is, you know, uh, that, that victory that death has had is going to be snatched from its, its clutches, right? The, the, the sting that death has always had for humans is gone, right? Death, for, for, all, for all of human history, death has kind of sat atop the food chain, as it were, right? Um, you know, this animal eats that animal, that animal eats, right? You know, there's, there's kind of like, there's the, there are these apex predators that kind of reside on top of their respective food chain, lion, tiger, shark, human, what, whatever it is that, that you eat other things and nothing eats you, uh, death eats them. Death, death is on top of every food chain. It is kind of the, the king. No one beats death. Death gets the final word. Death is kind of the, the king until Jesus dies and is resurrected from the dead. And now there's a new uh, apex predator sitting on top of the food. Jesus is on is over top of death. Jesus beat death. Jesus killed death. The death itself experienced death through the, the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. And then Jesus, uh, after taking our sin upon him, taking our guilt upon him, right, uh, dying in our place, bearing our punishment, then Jesus invites his people to trust in him, to come to the Father through him, to be clothed in his righteousness and to be hidden in who he is and what he has done so that they can escape death just like Jesus has overcome death, right? So, so the, the resurrection is kind of intended to, to, to you know, uh, establish and kind of uh, have this, this once for all all of eternity, victory over death. That's not just for Jesus, but it's for everyone who identifies with Jesus and trusts in in Jesus. Jesus is raised from the dead, resurrected in power and glory, new life, proving that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father, proving that there is no more wrath for the people of God, but only mercy, proving that everything that Jesus ever said was in fact true and can be trusted dies to pay for sin, is risen to vindicate himself as our Savior, to give us assurance so that we can be welcomed into the kingdom of God, so that we don't need to fear death anymore, so that we don't need to continually live in defeat under death anymore, but now we can live in victory over over death. That's kind of what we remember, what we celebrate on, on Easter Sunday, that death has been swallowed up in victory, its sting is gone, and we do not fear death anymore. Because up until that point, like up until uh, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we did live in fear of death, right? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But Paul says, here's why 
Death is so powerful. Here's why death uh, sat atop the food chain for so long, because it was, uh, it, it was kind of the, death was the result of, what's the thing in biology, the, the ir- irresistible force and the immovable object? So like, yeah, the, the immovable object and the irresistible, like, like so, so uh, you know, death what kind of came as a result of the, the collision or the, the confrontation of our sin and the law, right? The law, which itself is an expression of the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and our sin, which is kind of internal and intrinsic to who we are. Our sin, God's holiness. Our sin, God's law. Those two things kind of come together. They, they collide. They combust, and death is what comes as the result of that, right? According to, according to Romans 7, the law of God is, is holy. The commandment of God is holy and righteous and good. The law of God is not, uh, it's not bad. It's not some arbitrary uh, thing that was made up. It, it's an expression of who God is. And, and when we uh, look at the law, Right, the law is intended to reflect the holiness of God, but then the holiness of God, when kind of uh, put in contrast with or juxtaposed next to our sin, the result is death, separation from God, expulsion from the kingdom of God. We're not allowed to be in the presence of God. Right? When you sin, when you break God's law, when you fail to uh, worship God as He deserves to be worshipped, when you fail to love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot, right, you kind of uh, bring upon yourself the situation where you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot experience the presence and the glory of God. You can only enter the kingdom of God if you're imperishable, if you're immortal. But we've kind of invited perishability. We've invited mortality into our human experience. And that's kind of the fundamental problem that we're struggling against, wrestling against, fighting against. We were created to know God. Our sin has separated us from God. We've spent our entire life longing to be redeemed, longing to be reinstated back into the presence of God, back so that we can, you know, enjoy God's love and God's grace. So we try to we try to kind of remedy that situation through any number of strategies, right? We'll, we'll you know... Uh, try to try to remedy this strategy through recklessly uh, pursuing pleasure, money, possessions, status, power. I'm gonna right. I'm going to just forget all about this fundamental problem of me being separated from God, me not experiencing the presence of God by trying to fill that thirst, fill that uh, that desire up with every other thing I can put put in there. I'll accumulate everything I can, hoping that something will eventually fulfill me and that I'll feel complete and, and help me to feel as if I were reconciled to God. We invariably come up short. Right? Some try to remedy this issue through religion, morality, spirituality. Right? I'm going to follow every rule, dot every I, cross every T, make sure that I'm totally buttoned up so that so that God might be impressed with me and and thereby allow me to inherit his kingdom. We spend our entire lives trying to convince ourselves that we're good enough or to convince everyone else around us that we are good enough or to convince God himself that we are good enough in the hopes that in one way or another we can inherit the kingdom of God. But we never uh, will. We never can.
can. We cannot come into the presence of God. We cannot experience the kingdom of God. Because the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. We've got a holy God and a sinful man. And those two kind of collide together. And the result is spiritual death, separation from God. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul structures this sentence intentionally. God is the subject. Gives is the verb. Oh man. I, I, uh, victory is the direct object. And us is the indirect object. Does that, does that sound right? Diagramming. I think, I think uh, God is the subject. Gives is the verb. Got that much. I think I think us is the indirect object that receives and victory is the direct object that's being given. But so, so he structures the sentence to say, God is the acting agent. God is the one who, God is the one who gives victory to his people. All of the struggling, striving to be good enough and righteous enough, all of our attempts to shed ourselves of our perishability and our mortality so that we can, we can inherit the kingdom of God. All of that striving is is useless because we can never accomplish said victory on our own. The victory over death is something that God has to give to us. God is in heaven. God is in his kingdom. God is immortal. God is imperishable. We are flesh and blood here on earth, perishable. We cannot get to God. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot be be good enough to inherit the kingdom. So God has to come to us. God has to give us the victory. God has to change us and give us new life, resurrection life, new spirit, immortality, imperishability. Salvation comes from God and not from within ourselves. The first point is that there's this intrinsic problem. Something about you, something about the very core of who you are is incompatible with. It's unfit to inherit the kingdom of God. You've violated God's law, violated God's righteousness, been separated from God, and cannot experience his presence. And then the second point is that if we want to inherit the kingdom of God, we need God to change us. We need God to defeat death on our behalf. We need God to snatch the victory away from death and to take it for himself and to give it to us. Which God does in Christ, right? God comes to us lives among us, keeps the law, fulfills it, dies in our place, is raised from the dead, power, victory, new life given to to us. It's kind of the second point in verses 51 to 57. And then point three is kind of our response in light of of all of that. In in light of our sinfulness and brokenness and unfitness to, to inherit the kingdom of God, and in light of and in view of God's sovereign grace and acting upon us and giving us new life, giving us resurrection power, giving us victory over Satan and sin and death. In view of that, there's a call to persevere and to trust God and to walk with him and to, to serve him. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, Always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
So this, this last verse represents a shift from the, uh, up until now we've been dealing with the indicative, statements of facts. Here's what is true about you. Here's what is true about God. You are sinful. You need a savior. God is gracious. God is your savior. God will give you victory over death through Christ. Indicative statements of facts. And now Paul has transitioned to the, the imperative, right? To, to, to giving commands and exhortations about how to respond to the gospel. Here, given everything that I've just said, here's what you need to do now. Here's how you need to respond specifically to be steadfast and immovable. Picture is, uh, you know, of of a, a, you know, just being rooted, being being a, a brick wall, something that is strong, something that's unyielding, right? A tree with roots deep down in the soil that can stand firm, right? That the idea is that this life will be difficult, this life will be chaotic, this life will be turbulent, right? Life in a fallen world means that you are either suffering right now at this moment or you are are about to be suffering soon at some point in the near future. Illness, death, fractured relationships, people turn their back on you, trouble at work, trouble at at home, right? Desires, even godly desires that, that go unmet or unfulfilled for an extended period of time, right? There's any number of reasons why uh, living in this world would cause us to be shaken and, and neutralized or sidelined. And God says, uh, in the midst of all of that, be steadfast, be centered, be, be rooted. There's any number of ways to, to achieve. There's any number of ways to obey this. But, but the, the, the most basic and the most self-evident would be the spiritual disciplines. Studying your Bible spending time in prayer, cultivating life-giving relationships within your biblical community, being discipled by mature believers, discipling others and helping them to grow in their faith, right? Reading uh, good books together, attending corporate worship, singing songs and hymns that feed your soul, hearing hearing the word of God preached over you and responding to it in your, your heart, silence, solitude, fasting, right? Basic spiritual ones that God has given to believers called the ordinary means of grace that he intends for us to use so that we can be rooted and steadfast, right? Immovable, not flashy. They're not sexy. They're not, you know, they're, they're not like some quick fix. But over time, these spiritual disciplines help us to be rooted and secure and, and stable, right? Uh, I, I looked up uh, you know, trees and, and root systems of trees uh, this week. It's just uh, as I was kind of meditating on this verse here. You know why big, huge, tall trees that we see anywhere are as, as strong as they are, right? Hurricane gusts of wind don't blow them over. Them with a, you know, a car that's tons and tons of pounds of steel. They don't move an inch. Because they, because they have this big, thick, intense, deep root system that dozens of feet down into the ground and then spreads out, you know, two to three times wider than the, the canopy of the tree itself. So there's this huge, like, complex, extensive root system that kind of grows deep down into the ground 
That's what keeps it safe and healthy and strong and, and steady. Even when there's turbulence or when there's heavy wind, the tree is going to be steadfast and immovable because of the, the root system that's been built down into the, the soil. Right? God calls Christians to put down the roots of spiritual disciplines deep into the soil of the Word of God so that they can be steadfast and immovable, rooted in God's Word just through the, the ordinary means of grace, prayer, Bible study, relationships, the sacraments. We're going to take communion today. Relationships with one another, discipling relationships. So that's kind of the first uh, kind of, you know, segment of Paul's uh, instruction or Paul's exhortation about how to respond to the resurrection of Jesus is, is to be steadfast and immovable. It's kind of the, this, uh, you know, picture of don't move, stand firm, be strong. But he also says to then abound in the work of, of the Lord, right? So part of it is hunker down, be planted, rooted, steady, strong, absorb, deflect, stand firm when life is, is kind of chaotic and, and moving you all around. That's part of the Christian life is stable and still and stationary. But part of the Christian life is uh, abounding, moving, going out. Right? Love your neighbors, love your fellow church members, bear their burdens, meet their needs, live in relationship with them, right? Uh, communicate with them, uh, you know, walk with them, forgive them. There's a sense in which much of the Christian life is here. It's me, it's inner man, it's my soul, God rooted, planted, prayer, Bible study. But there's a sense in which much of the Christian life is out there. People around me, neighbors, relationships, generosity, kindness, patience, grace giving people the benefit of the doubt, representing Christ well to the world uh, around me. And Paul is calling uh, believers to do both, right? Be, be here, internal, steady, immovable, don't move an inch, but also abound, be out, go out, love, love your neighbor. How many Christians choose one over the other, right? Err on one side, uh, you know, err on one side to the exclusion of of the other, right? Christians, I'm steadfast. I'm immovable. I believe all the right things. I'll never compromise. I'll never bow my, my knee to bail. I will hold fast. But they don't, uh, don't seem to emphasize as much the idea of, of loving your neighbor, being kind, being warm, being compassionate, forgiving, reconciling, being gracious, right? Is the nitpicker, the fundamentalist, the, the argumentative guy, the super religious guy. Some people can hit the rocks on the other side. I'm I'm nice, I'm kind, I'm hip, I'm cool, I feed the poor, work for justice. But when it comes to believing the Bible and proclaiming the Bible, even when it's unpopular, and being strong and having fortitude, right? I find myself being Ephesians 4, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind and every false doctrine, right? This is the compromiser, watered-down theology, liberal, right? Uh, lacks strong beliefs and convictions. So he's, super, right, That's the, there's the religious guy, there's the spiritual guy. 
God calls us to kind of lean into both of those aspects of the Christian life. Be strong, convictions, rooted, unyielding. Don't be uh, you know, affected by the, the world and the sin that it's constantly throwing at you. Be strong, but also abound and go out and love your neighbor and be kind and be generous and be gracious. You need to feed your soul through the spiritual disciplines and you need to live in community and love your neighbor. God requires both. But here's the question, and this is kind of how it all uh, relates back to the resurrection. This is why this verse kind of concludes uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's treatise on the resurrection, right? The question is, all right, so if I read verse 58 and I get it, I get that you want me to be steadfast and immovable and to be strong but also to abound in the work of the Lord and to love my neighbor and to kind of work for justice and, and make the world a better place. I get that you want me to do both of those things, Paul, but why should I? Why should I be steadfast? Why should I? It seems like, uh, it seems like sometimes as I am trying to obey God, trying to live for God, trying to be a godly uh, change agent in the world, believing the gospel, nobody really seems to notice or care. Uh, it doesn't seem to amount to much. It feels like just running on a treadmill but not getting anywhere. Meanwhile, I look out at the world. I see wicked people seem to be doing just fine, prospering, right? Making more money than me. Their family seems to be more stable than mine is. Their life seems to be easy. By, by all appearances, they seem to be enjoying the favor of God more than, than I am. So why should I go through all this trouble? of walking with God, practicing the spiritual disciplines, loving my neighbor. Why not just be selfish? Why not, right? When, when someone sins against me or when I, uh, you know, am upset of them, why should I forgive? Why should I be humble? Why should I reconcile? Why not just uh, demand, uh, you know, my pound of flesh and refuse to relate to them anymore? When, you know, when, when uh, instead of reading my Bible, why not just watch TV and eat, eat junk food. Instead of worshiping God with my church family, why not just get drunk and pass out and sleep in? Instead of being generous, why not just hoard everything to myself and spend it on stuff that I don't need? Instead of loving my neighbor, why not uh, judge them, right? Instead of being steadfast and immovable, right? Why bother with all this stuff? Because it seems thankless. It seems like no one notices and no one cares. And this is kind of how it circles back to the resurrection, knowing that In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. This is how the the resurrection uh, comes to bear on the Christian life. If it seems like what you do in this life doesn't matter, if it seems like what you do in this life is a waste of time and energy, uh, the, the resurrection kind of obliterates that. The resurrection of Jesus gives meaning to what we do in this life. Because if Jesus has been risen from the dead, that means you are going to be raised from the dead. If you're going to be raised from the dead, that means you're going to stand before God and give an account to him for how you live your life. In fact, you're going to spend all of eternity answering to God for how you live your life here in this world. What you do now matters. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What you do in this life echoes on into eternity. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and if you're not going to be raised from the dead, then nothing matters. Then all of your labor in the Lord is 
in vain. Go right ahead. Be selfish. Live for yourself and not for God because this life is all that there is and it doesn't matter. If Jesus did uh, get up out of the grave and if you are not going to be resurrected from the dead. 20th century philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre said that no finite point has meaning without an infinite reference point. It's kind of heady. Um, but here, here's, here's kind of where he's going with it. If, you, uh, if someone says to you, I want you to find point B. Go find, go find this finite point, point B, go find it. And you say, great, I'll try my best to find point B. Where is it? He says, no problem. I'll tell you. I'll give you a reference point. Point B is right in between point A and point C. Go. Right, go find point B now that I've given you a reference point about it. And you're going to say, well, where? how do I find point A? How do I point C? I don't know. They could be anywhere. All I know is that point B is in between point A and point C. You're going to say, well, I don't, I'm not going to find point B because I, point A and point C could be. You're like, you've, given me a, a, you've given me a finite point. And you've given me a reference point, but that reference point is itself finite, and therefore it's meaningless. I have no, uh, I have no ability to find this finite point because it was on a finite reference point. That's that's what that's why math works the way that it does, is because any given number, the number seven, right, is is a finite point, but it exists on a spectrum on on an, an infinite reference point, right. Seven is one more than six. It's one less than eight. But it's also, it exists on a spectrum that goes out to, to infinity in either direction. So now I know what seven, I can assign meaning to the number seven. I know what it is because it's a finite point that exists on an infinite reference point. So here's the, here's the application. If this life is all that there is, if you have this life, 80 years, there is no God, there is no eternity, then you have a finite point that has no reference point and no infinite reference point to kind of set it in context or to kind of give it meaning. Your life is is meaningless. So eat and drink and be merry. Live for the moment because this moment is all that you have. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this reality is all there is. It's inescapable. But if Jesus not only died, but he got up out of the grave. That means that our finite point of our life, this these few decades that we have here, is set against an infinite reference point, an infinite God that presides over it, that we will answer to. The finite point of our lives now has an infinite reference point of God and eternity, and it matters, and it has meaning. Now, when you trust God and obey God and love your neighbor, it matters. What you do in this life echoes into eternity. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain because God sees it. Your faithfulness to God is not in vain because God remembers it. When you love your neighbor sacrificially and practice generosity and forgive someone when they sin against you, those things are not done in vain. Your life is lived in view of a God who sees everything, a God who will raise you up from the dead, a God who you will stand before to give an account, a God who you will spend eternity either dwelling with and enjoying or being separated from and suffering under His wrath. Your life matters. Your obedience matters. Your repentance matters. Your faithfulness to Christ matters. The labor that you are doing in the work of the Lord is not done in vain. 
because you will be raised up to live forever to answer for it because Jesus, your sovereign King, the Son of God, was Himself raised up to empower you to do that. That is what we remember on Easter Sunday. That's what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Our lives matter because they're set in the context of eternity because Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus got up out of the grave. We remember that at Easter and we remember that at the communion table. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus' body was broken. Jesus' blood was poured out. Jesus bore the wrath of God so that we don't have to. And then Jesus was raised from the dead. He's alive right now. He's interceding on our behalf. He's giving us His resurrection power. He's giving us His new life. He's giving us His victory over Satan and sin and death. He's inviting us to trust in Him, to receive forgiveness, power, new life, and victory. The Lord Jesus, the night when He was betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, we invite you to join us this morning for communion. During the last song, Jason's going to lead us. Just come up, uh, take the elements. They're individually wrapped. Uh, there's a little, you know, piece of bread in the top and then the, the juice underneath of it. Just take a moment. Reflect. Pray. Spend a moment with God. Repent of your sin. Receive the grace that he's offering freely to you through Jesus. And then eat and drink and remember and celebrate the, the truth of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you, not to take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Be like putting on a wedding ring and referring to someone as your spouse if uh, you've not you're not married to them. So instead of taking communion, we'd invite you to take Christ and to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus and to to press into a relationship with Him as your Savior along with us. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite Jason back up, and then we're gonna uh, take communion and and sing. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that you have risen from the dead. We thank you for your sufficient death and for your glorious resurrection. We thank you that you are alive right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, hearing our prayers, watching over us, ruling over us. Lord, we take great comfort in the reality that you have, in fact, risen from the dead, right? And this gives us deep-seated assurance about the sufficiency of your death for us, right? It gives us new life, power to overcome sin. Lord, we acknowledge that we cannot inherit the kingdom of God on our own. We need you to change us, to regenerate us, to give us victory over death. And as we do, Lord, we pray that you would help us to persevere, and to live for your glory, knowing that it is not in vain. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen.